Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Uh, this week I will be doing U.S. President number seven, Andrew Jackson, part one. Andrew Jackson, March 15, 1767 to June 8, 1845, was an American soldier and statesman who served as the seventh president of the United States from 1829 to 1837. Before being elected to the president, Jackson gained fame as a general in the United States Army and served in both houses of the U.S. Congress. As President Jackson sought to advance the rights of the common man against the corrupt aristocracy and to preserve the Union. Born in the Colonial Carolinas to a Scotch-Irish family, in the decade before the American Revolutionary War, Jackson became a frontier lawyer and married Rachel Donaldson Robards. He served briefly in the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate, representing Tennessee. After resigning, he, reserved as a, he served as a justice on the Tennessee Supreme Court from 1798 until 1804. Jackson preserved, purchased a property later known as the Hermitage and became a wealthy slave-owning planter. In 1801, he was appointed colonel of the Tennessee Militia and was elected as commander the following year. He led troops during the Creek of War of eight. He led troops during the Creek War of 1813 to 1814, winning the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. The subsequent Treaty of Fort Jackson required the Creek surrender of vast lands in present-day Alabama and Georgia. In the concurrent war against the British, Jackson's victory in 1815. At the Battle of New Orleans made him a national hero. Jackson then led U.S. forces in the First Seminole War, which led to the annexation of Florida from Spain. Jackson briefly served as Florida's first territorial governor before returning to the Senate. He ran for president in 1824, winning a plurality of the popular and electoral votes. As no candidate won an electoral majority, the House of Representatives elected John Quincy Adams in a contingent election in reaction to the alleged corrupt bargain between Adams and Henry Clay and the ambitious agenda of President Adams. Jackson's supporters founded the Democratic Party. Jackson ran again in 1828, defeating Adams in a landslide. Jackson faced the threat of succession by South Carolina over, the, over what opponents called the Tariff of Abominations. The crisis was diffused with the tariff was amended and Jackson threatened the use of military force if South Carolina attempted to secede. In Congress, Henry Clay led the effort to reauthorize the Second Bank of the United States. Jackson, regarding the bank as a corrupt institution, vetoed the renewal of its charter. After a lengthy struggle, Jackson and his allies thoroughly dismantled the bank. In 1835, Jackson became the only president to completely pay off the national debt, fulfilling a long-time goal. His presidency marked the beginning of the ascendancy of the party spoil system in American politics. In 1830, Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which forcibly relocated most members of the Native American tribes in the South to Indian Territory. The relocation process dispossessed the Indians and resulted in widespread death and disease. Jackson opposed the abolitionist movement, which grew stronger in his second term. In foreign affairs, Jackson's administration included a most favored nation treaty with Great Britain, settled claims for damages against France from the Napoleonic Wars, and recognized the Republic of Texas. In January 1835, he survived the pre first assassination attempt on a, a sitting president. In his retirement, Jackson remained active in Democratic Party politics, supporting the presidencies of Martin Van Buren and James K. Polk. Though fearful of his effects on the slavery debate, Jackson advocated the annexation of Texas, which was 
accomplished shortly before his death. Jackson has been widely revered in the United States as an advocate for democracy and the common man. Many of his actions proved decisive, garnering both fervent support and strong opposition from many in the country. His reputation has suffered since the 19th largely due to his role in Native American removal. Surveys of historians and scholars have ranked Jackson favorably among U.S. presidents. Early Life and Education Andrew Jackson was born on March 15, 1767 in the Waxhaws region of the Carolinas. His parents were Scots-Irish colonists Andrew and Elizabeth Hutchinson Jackson, Presbyterians who had immigrated from present-day Northern Ireland two years earlier. Jackson's father was born in Carrickfergus County, Antrim, in current-day Northern Ireland around 1738. Jackson's parents lived in the village of Boney before, also in County Antrim. His paternal family originated in Killingswold Grove, Yorkshire, England. When they immigrated to North America in 1765, Jackson's parents probably landed in Philadelphia. Most likely, they traveled overland through the Appalachian Mountains to the Scots-Irish community in the Waxhaw Australia in the border of North, Car- North and South Carolina. They brought two children from Ireland, Hugh, born 1760, and Robert, born 1764. Jackson's father died in a logging accident while clearing land in February 1767. At the age of 29, three weeks before his son, Andrew, was born. Jackson, his mother, and his brothers lived with Jackson's aunt and uncle in the Waxhaw region, and Jackson received schooling from two nearby priests. Jackson's exact birth is unclear because of a lack of knowledge of his Mother's actions immediately following her husband's funeral, the area was so remote that the border between North and South Carolina had not been officially surveyed. In 1824, Jackson wrote a letter saying that he had been born on the plantation of his uncle James Crawford in Lancaster County, South Carolina. Jackson may have claimed to be a South Carolina because the state was considering notification of the terror of 1824, which he opposed in the mid-1850s. Secondhand evidence indicated that he might have been born at a different uncle's home in North Carolina. As a young boy, Jackson was easily offended and was considered something of a bully. He was, however, said to have taken a group of younger and weaker boys under his wing and been very kind to them. Revolutionary War Service During the Revolutionary War, Jackson's eldest brother Hugh died from heat exhaustion at the Battle of Stonewall Ferry on June 20th, 1779. Anti-British sentiment intensified following the brutal Waxhaw's massacre on May 29, 1780. Jackson's mother encouraged him and his elder brother Robert to attend the local militia drills. Soon they began to help the militia as couriers. They served under Colonel William Richardson Davy at the Battle of Hanging Rock on August 6. Andrew and Robert were captured by the British in April 1781 while staying at the home of the Crawford family. When Andrew refused to clean the boots of a British officer, the officer sloshed at the youth with a sword, leaving him with scars on his left hand and head as well as an intense hatred for the British. Robert also refused to do as commanded and was struck with the sword. With The sword, the two brothers were held as prisoners, contracted smallpox, and nearly starved to death in captivity. Later that year, their mother lives secured the brothers' release. She then began to walk both boys back to their home in the Wax Halls, a distance of some 40 miles. Both were in very poor health. Robert, who was far worse, rode on the only horse they had while Andrew walked behind them. In the final two hours of the journey, a torrential damper began, which worsened the effects of the smallpox. Within two days of arriving back home, Robert was dead and Andrew in mortal danger. After nursing Andrew back to hell, Elizabeth volunteered to nurse America. <laughs> Prisoners of war on board two British ships in the Charleston Harbor 
where there had been an outbreak of cholera. In November, she died from the disease and was buried in an unmarked grave. Andrew became an orphan at age 14. He blamed the British person for the loss of his brothers and mother. Early career, legal career, and marriage. After the Revolutionary War, Jackson received a sporadic education in a local Waxhaw school. On, broad, on bad terms with much of his extended family, he aborted with several different people. In 1781, he worked for a time as a saddle maker and eventually taught school. He apparently prospered in neither, neither profession. In 1784, he left the Waxhaw region for Salisbury in North Carolina, where he studied law under attorney Bruce Spruce McKay. With the help of various lawyers, he was able to learn enough to qualify for the bar. In September 1787, Jackson was admitted to the North Carolina Bar. Shortly thereafter, his friend John McNary helped him get appointed to a vacant prosecutor position in the Western District of North Carolina, which would later become the state of Tennessee. During his travel west, Jan Jackson brought, bought his first slave and in 1788, having been offended by fellow lawyer, Wade Still Avery fought his first duel. The duel ended with both men firing into the air, having made a secret agreement to do so before the engagement, Jackson moved to the small frontier town of Nashville in 1788, where he lived as a boarder with Rachel Stockley Donaldson, the widow of John Donaldson. Here, Jackson became acquainted with their daughter, Rachel Donaldson Robards. The younger Rachel was an, an unhappy marriage with Captain Lewis Robards. He was subject to fits of jealous rage. The two were separate in 1790. According to Jackson, he married Rachel after hearing that Ray Robards had obtained a divorce. Her divorce had not been made final, making Rachel's marriage to Jackson bigamous and therefore invalid. After the divorce was completely was officially completed, Rachel and Jackson remarried in 1794. To complicate matters further, evidence shows that Rachel had been living with Jackson and referred to herself as Mrs. Jackson before the petition for divorce was ever made. It was not uncommon on the frontier for relationships to be formed and dissolved unofficially as long as they were recognized by the community. Land speculation and early public career. In 1794, Jackson formed a partnership with fellow lawyer John Overton, dealing in claims for land reserved by treaty for the Cherokee and Chickasaw. Like many of their contemporaries, they dealt in such claims, although the land was in Indian country, most of the transactions of all grants made under the Land Grab Act of 1783 that briefly opened Indian lands west of the Appalachians within North Carolina to claim by that state's residents. He was one of the three original investors who founded Memphis, Tennessee in 1819. After moving to Nashville, Jackson became a protege of William Blount, a friend of the Donaldsons and one of the most powerful men in the territory. Jackson became attorney general in 1791, and he won election as a delegate to the Tennessee Constitutional Convention in 1796. When Tennessee achieved statehood that year, he was elected its only U.S. representative. He was a member of the Democratic-Republican Party, and the dominant party in Tennessee. As a representative, Jackson staunchly defended the rights of Tennesseans against the Indians. He strongly opposed the Jay Treaty and criticized George Washington for allegedly removing Republicans from public office. Jackson joined several other Republican congressmen in voting against a resolution of thanks for Washington, a vote that would later haunt him when he sought the presidency. In 1797, the state legislature elected him as U.S. Senator. Jackson settled participated in debate and found the job dissatisfying. He pronounced himself disgusted with the administration of President John Adams and resigned the following year without explanation. 
Upon returning home with strong support from Western Tennessee, he was elected to serve as a judge of the Tennessee Supreme Court at an annual salary of $600. Jackson's service as a judge is generally viewed as a success and earned him a reputation for honesty and good decision making. Jackson resigned the judgeship in 1804. His official reason for resigning was ill health. He had been suffering financially from poor land ventures, and so it's also possible that he wanted to return full-time to his business interests. After arriving in Tennessee, Jackson won the appointment of Judge Advocate of the Tennessee Militia. In 1802, while serving in the Tennessee Supreme Court, he declared his candidacy for Major General or Commander of the, of the Tennessee Militia, a position voted on by the officers. At that time, most free men were members of the militia. The organization tended to be called up in case of conflict with Europeans or Indians resembled large social clubs. Jackson saw it as a way to advance his stature with strong support from Western Tennessee. He tied with John Sevier with 17 votes. Sevier was a popular Revolutionary War veteran and former governor, the recognized leader of politics in Eastern Tennessee. On February 5th, Governor Archibald Roan broke the tie in Jackson's favor. Jackson had also presented Roan with evidence of land fraud against Sevier. Subsequently, in 1803, when Sevier announced his intention to regain the governorship, Roan released the evidence. Jackson then published a newspaper article accusing Sevier of fraud and bribery. Sevier insulted Jackson in the public, and the two nearly fought a duel over the matter. Despite the charges leveled against Sevier, he defeated Roan and continued to serve as governor until 1809. Planning, Career, and Controversy in addition to his legal and political career, Jackson prospered as a planner, slave owner, and merchant. He built a home and the first general store in Gallatin, Tennessee in 1803. The next year, he acquired the Hermitage, a 640-acre plantation in Davidson County near Nashville. He later added 360 acres to the plantation, which eventually totaled 1,050 acres. The primary crop was cotton grown by slaves. Jackson began with nine, owned as many as 44 by 1820, and up to and later up to 150, placing him among the planner elite. Jackson also co-owned with his son Andrew Jackson Jr. the Halcyon Plantation in Coahoma County, Mississippi, which housed 51 slaves at the time of his death. Throughout his lifetime, Jackson may have owned as many as 300 slaves. Men, women, and child slaves were owned by Jackson on three sections of the Hermitage Plantation. Slaves lived in extended family units of between 5 and 10 persons and were quartered in 400 square feet cabins made either of brick or logs. The size and quality of the Hermitage Slave Quarter exceeded the standards of its times. To help slaves acquire food, Jackson supplied them with guns, knives, and fishing equipment. At times, he paid the slaves with monies and coins to trade in local markets. The Hermitage Plantation was a profit-making enterprising. Jackson permitted slaves to be whipped to increase productivity or if he believed his slaves' offenses were severe enough. At various times, he posted advertisements with future slaves Escapes from his plantation. In one advertisement placed in the Tennessee Gazette in October 1804, Jackson offered $10 extra for every hundred lashes any person will give him to the amount of 300 The country surrounding his marriage to Rich remained a sore point for Jackson, who deeply resented attacks on his wife's honor. By May 1806, Charles Dickinson, who, like Jackson, raced horses, had published an attack on Jackson in a local newspaper, and it resulted in a Written challenge from Jackson to a duel. Since Dixon was sent an expert and shot, Jackson determined to be the best to let Dixon turn and fire first, hoping that his aim might be spoiled in his quickness. 
Jackson would wait and take careful aim at Dickinson. Dickinson did fire first, hitting Jackson in the chest. The bullet that struck Jackson was so close to his heart that it could not be removed. Under the rules of dueling, Dickinson had to remain still as Jackson took aim and shot and killed him. Jackson's behavior in the duel outraged men in Tennessee who called it a brutal, cold-blooded killing and saddled Jackson with the reputation of a violent, vengeful man. He became a social outcast. After the Sevier affair with the duel, and the duel, Jackson was looking for a way to salvage his reputation. He chose to align himself with former Vice President Aaron Burr. Burr's political career ended after the killing of Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. In 1805, he set out on a tour of what was then the Western United States. Burr was extremely well received by the people of Tennessee and stayed for five days at the Hermitage. Burr's true intentions are not known with certainty. He seems to have been planning a military operation to conquer Spanish Florida and drive the Spanish from Texas. To many Westerns like Jackson, the problems seemed enticing. Western American settlers had long been held bitter feelings towards Spain due to territory disputes and the persistent failure of the Spanish to keep Indians living on their lands from raiding American settlements. On October 4, 1806, Jackson addressed the Tennessee militia, declaring that the men should be at a moment's warning ready to march. On the same day, he wrote to James Winchester, complaining that the United States can conquer not only the Floridas at that time, there were an East Florida and a West Florida, but all Spanish North America. He continued, I have a hope, should there be a call, that at least 2,000 volunteers can be led into the field at a short notice. That number commanded by firm officers and men of enterprise, I think could look into Santa Fe and Mexico, give freedom and commerce to those problems and establish peace. And it and a permanent barrier against the inroads and attacks of foreign powers on our interior, which will be the case so long as Spain holds that large country on our borders. Jackson agreed to provide boats and other provisions for the expedition. However, on November 10th, he learned from a military captain that Burr's plans apparently included siege of New Orleans, then part of the Louisiana Territory of the United States, and incorporating it along with lands won from the Spanish into a new empire. He was further outraged when he learned from the same man of the involvement of Brigadier General James Wilkinson, whom he deeply disliked in the plan. Jackson acted cautiously at first, but wrote letters to public officials, including Thomas Jefferson, vaguely warning them about the scheme. In December, Jefferson, a political opponent of Burr, issued a proclamation declaring that a treasonous plot was underway in the West and calling for the arrest of the perpetrators. Jackson, safe from arrest because of extensive paper trail, organized the militia. Burr was soon captured and the men were sent home. Jackson traveled to Richmond, Virginia to testify on Burr's behalf in the trial. The defense team decided against placing him on the witness and fearing his remarks were too provocative. Burr was acquitted of treason despite Jefferson's to have him convicted. Jackson endorsed James Monroe for president in 1808 against James Madison. The latter was part of the Jeffersonian wing of the Democratic Republican Party. Jackson lived relatively quietly at the Hermitage in the years after the Burr trial, eventually accumulating 640 acres of land. Military career. Leading up to 1812, the United States found itself increasingly drawn into international conflict. Formal hostilities with Spain or France never materialized, but tensions with Britain increased for a number of reasons. Among these was the desire of many Americans for more land, particularly British, Canada, and Florida. The latter is still controlled by Spain, Britain's European ally. On June 18, 1812, 
Congress officially declared war on the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland beginning the War of 1812. Jackson responded enthusiastically, sending a letter to Washington offering 2,500 volunteers. However, the men were not called up for many months. Barg for Robert V. Remini claims that Jackson saw the apparent slight as a payback by the Madison administration for support of Burr and Monroe. Meanwhile, the United States military repeatedly suffered devastating defeats on the battlefield. On January 10, 1813, Jackson led an army of 2,071 volunteers to New Orleans to defend the region against British and Native American attacks. He had been instructed to serve under General Wilkinson, who commanded federal forces in New Orleans, lacking adequate provisions. Wilkinson ordered Jackson to halt in Natchez, then part of the Mississippi Territory, and await further orders. Jackson reluctantly obeyed the newly appointed Secretary of War. John Armstrong Jr. sent a letter to Jackson dated February 6th, ordering to dismiss his forces and to turn over his supplies to Wilkinson. In reply to Armstrong on March 15th, Jackson defended the character and readiness of his men and promised to return over his supplies. He also promised, instead of dismissing the troops without provisions in Natchez, to march them back to Nashville. The march was filled with agony. Many of the men had fallen ill. Jackson and his officers turned over their horses to the sick. He paid for provisions for the men out of his own pocket. The soldiers began referring to the commander as Hickory because of his toughness, and Jackson became known as Old Hickory. The army arrived in Nashville within about a month. Jackson's actions earned him respect and praise from the people of Tennessee. Jackson faced financial ruin until his former aide de camp, Thomas Benton, persuaded Secretary Armstrong to order the army to pay the expenses Jackson had incurred. On June 14th, Jackson served as a second in a duel on behalf of his junior officer, William Carroll, against Jesse Benton, the brother of Thomas. On September 3rd, Jackson and his top cavalry officer, Brigadier General John Coffey, were involved in a street brawl with the Benton brothers. Jackson was severely wounded by Jesse with a gunshot to the shoulder. On August 30, 1813, a group of Muscogee, also known as Creek Indians, called the Red Sticks, so named for the color of their war paint, perpetrated the Fort Mims Massacre. During the massacre, hundreds of white American soldiers and non-Red Sticks Creeks were slaughtered. The Red Sticks, led by Chiefs Red Eagle and Peter McQueen, had broken away from the rest of the Creek Confederacy, which wanted peace with the United States. They were allied with Tecumseh, a Shawnee chief who had launched Tecumseh's war against the United States and who was fought alongside the British. The resulting conflict became known as the Creek War. Jackson, with 2,500 men, was ordered to crush the hostile Indians. On October 10th, he set out on the expedition, his arms still in a sling for fighting the Bentons. Jackson established Fort Strother as a supply base. On November 3rd, Coffee defeated a band of Red Sticks at the Battle of Tallahatchie, coming to the friendly relief of Friendly Creek besieged by Red Sticks. Jackson won another decisive victory at the Battle of Talladega. In the winter, Jackson encamped at Fort Strother faced a severe shortage of troops due to the expression of enlistments and the chronic desertions. He sent coffee with the cavalry, which abandoned him back to Tennessee to secure more enlistments. Jackson decided to combine his force with that of the Georgia militia and marched to meet the Georgia troops. From January 22nd to the 24th, 1814, while on the way, the Tennessee militia and Ally Muskogee were attacked by the Red Sticks at the battles of Imakfa and Inacha Chopo Creek. Jackson's troops repelled the attackers, but outnumbered were 
Fourth Hill Trial to Fort Strother. Jackson now, with over 2,000 troops, marched most of his army south to confront the rustics at a fortress they had constructed at a bend in the Tallapoosa River on March 27th, enjoying the advantage of more than two to one. He engaged them at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and initial artillery barrage did little damage to the well-constructed fort. A subsequent infantry charge, in addition to an assault by Coffee's cavalry and diversions caused by the friendly creeks, Overrun the Red Six. The campaign ended three weeks later with Red Eagle surrender. Although some Red Sticks, such as McQueen, fled to East Florida on June 8th, Jackson attempted accepted a commission as Brigadier General in the United States Army, and tens later became a Major General in command of the Seventh Military Division. Subsequently, Jackson, with Madison's approval, imposed the Treaty of Fort Jackson. The treaty required the Muscogee, including those who had not joined the Red Sticks, to surrender 23 million acres of land up to the United States. Most of the creeks bitterly acquiesced, though in ill health from dysentery. dysentery. Jackson turned his attention to defeating the Spanish and British forces. Jackson accused the Spanish of arming the Red Sticks and of violating the terms of their neutrality by following British soldiers into the Floridas. The first charge was true, while the second ignored the fact that it was Jackson's threat to invade Florida, which has caused them to seek British protection. In the November 7th Battle of Pensacola, Jackson defeated British and Spanish forces in the short skirmish. The Spanish surrendered and the British fled. Weeks later, he learned that the British were planning an attack on New Orleans, which sat on the mouth of the Mississippi River and held immense strategic and commercial value. At ja- Jackson abandoned Pensacola to the Spanish, placed a, mo- a force in Mobile, Alabama to guard against a possible invasion there and rushed the rest of his force west to defend the city. The Creeks coined their own name for Jackson, Jackson Chula Harjo or Jackson Old and Fierce. Battle of New Orleans After arriving in New Orleans on December 1st, 1814, Jackson instituted martial law in the city but as he worried about the loyalty of the city's Creole and Spanish inhabitants. At the same time, he formed an alliance with Jean Lafitte's smugglers and formed military units consisting of African Americans and Muscogees in addition to recruiting volunteers in the city. Jackson received some criticism for paying white and non-white volunteers the same salary. These forces, along with U.S. Army regulars, and volunteers from surrounding states joined with Jackson's force in defending New Orleans. Their approaching British force led by Admiral Alexander Cochrane and later General Edward Pakenham consisted of over 10,000 soldiers, many of whom he served had served in the Napoleonic Wars. Jackson had only about 5,000 men, most of whom were experienced and poorly trained. The British arrived on the east bank of the Mississippi River on the morning of December 23rd. That evening, Jackson attacked the British and temporarily drove them back. On January 8, 1815, the British launched a major frontal assault against Jackson's defenses. An initial artillery barrage by the British did little damage to the well-constructed American defenses. Once the morning fog had cleared, the British launched a frontal assault and their troops made easy targets for the Americans protected by their parapets. Despite managing to temporarily drive back the American right flank, the overall attack ended in disaster for battle for the battle on January 8, Jackson admitted to only 71 total casualties. Of these, 13 men were killed, 39 wounded, and 19 missing or captured. The British admitted 2,037 casualties. Of these, 291 men were killed, including Pakenham, 
1,262 wounded and four and four missing or captured. After the battle, the British retreated from the area and opened hostilities ended shortly thereafter when word spread of the Treaty of Ghent had been signed in Europe that, that December. Coming in the winning days of the war, Jackson's victory made him a national hero as a country celebrated the end of what many called the Second American Revolution against the British. By a congressional resolution on February 27, 1815, Jackson was given the thanks of Congress and awarded a Congressional Gold Medal. Alexis de Tocqueville, underwhelmed by Jackson, according to a 2000 commentator, later wrote in Democracy in America that Jackson was raised to the presidency and had been maintained there solely by the recollection of a victory which he gained 20 years ago under the walls of New Orleans. Some have claimed that because the war was already ended by the preliminary signing of the Treaty of Ghent, Jackson's victory at New Orleans was without importance aside from making him a celebrated figure. However, the Spanish, who had Sold to Louis III to France, the spirit of Francis Wright to sell it to the United States through the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. In April 1815, Spain, assuming that the British had won at New Orleans, asked for the return of the Louisiana Territory. Spanish representatives claimed to have been assured that they would receive the land back. Furthermore, Article 9 of the Treaty Against stipulated that the United States must return land taken from the Greeks to their original owners, essentially undoing the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Thanks to Jackson's victory at New Orleans, the American government felt it could safely ignore that provision and kept and it kept the lands that Jackson had acquired. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to part two of U.S. President Number Seven, Andrew Jackson.